we we looked at 300 million emails and looked at what percent the emails should be personalized. And we found that if you personalize up to 20% of the content of the email, you get a 2x increase in the reply rate at, at the 20% mark. And then beyond 20% of the content, you, you're, you're wasting your time. Welcome to the Blind Spots Podcast. This show is designed to help marketers and researchers understand just how to address blind spots in key go-to-market areas through primary research efforts. This podcast is brought to you by DoubleCheck Research, an established leader in win-loss and churn research and analysis with a mission to help clients improve their win rates by turning buyer insights into competitive advantage. My name's Ryan Sorley. I'm a founder, a researcher, a soon-to-be author, a husband to one and a dad to three, and your grateful and humble podcast host. Each show, I will engage with marketing, sales, product, and competitive intelligence experts in the B2B technology space in meaningful and thought-provoking conversations with actionable strategies on how to help product marketers and those with a love for research drive value across their organizations. Have you ever written a marketing email, sent it out to the world, grabbed a cup of coffee, and then kept clicking that refresh button on your campaign dashboard over and over with the hope that just one more person might open it up and possibly reply? If you've been there, you're going to love today's guest. Jeremy Donovan is the SVP of sales strategy at SalesLoft, a leading sales engagement platform. Jeremy is literally obsessed with data. And after analyzing over 3 million outbound emails, Jeremy and his team at SalesLoft have developed a formula and an amazing set of tools to help take the guesswork out of outbound emails. Hear all of Jeremy's tips and more on today's show. I'm honored today to have Jeremy Donovan on the show. Jeremy is the SDP of Sales Strategy and Operations at SalesLoft, a leading sales enablement platform provider. In his spare time, Jeremy has written not one, not two, but is it six books now, Jeremy? I think it's six now. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. (laughs) Including uh, the international public speaking bestseller, How to Deliver a TED Talk. And then on a personal level, Jeremy and I have known each other for quite a few years. He's an extra special guest, somebody that I've always looked up to. We worked together at Gartner for a number of years before all of the books, really, and the fanfare that is now Jeremy Donovan. And to this day, he's still one of the smartest people I know. So this is a super delight for me because I've, I've watched, you know, when, when you know, we acquired your company when I was at Gartner and you, know, you just sort of blew my mind with your retail expertise at the time. So I think you were running the retail segment for AMR and then just our ongoing friendship and, and your success with DoubleCheck is, has been just a truly amazing thing to watch. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. So to jump right into the questions, I'm curious, and I'm sure everybody who's listening is curious to know, like, what, in, what inspires you to do what you do? I mean, you've written six books. You know, it's, it's where it's all comes from probably anxiety, I guess, more than anything <laughs> else that I get, I get, I'm easily bored. My, one of my kids told me that I should like get a late in life diagnosis for ADHD, which, which I guess probably has something to do with it. But I, yeah, I just try to keep my, I try to keep my mind occupied. And I, I mean, I have a few things I'm just not natively interested in, right? So I'm not natively interested in television. I'm not like naturally interested in sports. So those things consume a lot of 
what I can tell, you know, p- other people in the world's time, television and sports. And by not having those things, I have to find an outlet just to pass the days to spend my time. And those outlets are usually, they're, they're like, I want, I like to create things. So whether it's, it's writing or whether it's computer programming or even weaving, like archery. I have all these weird, (laughs) weird hobbies that I've picked up just over time because I'm just trying to find, find ways to spend my days. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what is the SVP of strategy and operations at SalesLoft and data. uh, It sounds like it's a really big part of it. So dig deeper into that. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I've had a really unusual, well, everyone's their own special snowflake. So before I say like that, I'm any more unusual than anyone else. I think, you know, my particular version of my special snowflake was I was an engineer originally, which probably comes out in the way I talk and, and think. <laughs> and then I was a, an industry analyst where you and I were together at, at Gartner. And then I spent eight years at Gartner in all kinds of different product, marketing, operations, strategy types of roles. So I got to do a lot of different things. And then when I left Gartner and went, you know, to this the small company route, I found this thing that I really love, which is sales strategy and operations. And in particular, right, if you think about CROs, CROs have chief revenue officers are focused on, like they're focused on the business constantly, right? And and they're going to get involved maybe in some of the larger deals. They're coaching their, you know, they're coaching the managers and so on. And they may not have time to do the longer range stuff. Like they just, from what I've seen, by the way, chief revenue officers are probably the busiest people inside of companies, right? Like they are busier than CEOs, no question. I think they are the busiest people in the company. So, you know, I, I might, I, I'm usually try to be the right hand of this chief revenue officer. I don't want to be the CRO I was once, didn't, didn't love it. I want to be the right hand and I get to, I get to basically work on strategy, which I would define as people, process, and technology that drives meaningful change inside the company. So more concretely, that might be compensation strategy, territory strategy, forecasting strategy, the go-to-market, you know, elements of the go-to-market strategy. So just these pieces that might take three, six, nine, 12 months to affect change inside of a company, those are the kinds of things I love to focus on. So that's the job that myself and my team are responsible for. How do you bucket the data that you look at every day? Yeah, I guess I would put them into two broad buckets. One is it's just our internal sales operational data. And then there is the other side. That's basically a data warehouse of our customer data. And the security protocols around what I can and can't see are actually pretty strict. It's why I have a separate PC. Is all I, The only thing that PC does is allow me to... I can't do anything else. Like I can't do regular web browsing or whatever. All I can do is hit a particular server and ask it questions like, since I can't see any, any PII, any, any um, personally identifiable information, I can, I can ask a question, for example, should you use hey or hi or hello or none of the above in, this, in a greeting? How long should a, should a subject line of an email be? Should you say best or regards or thanks or cheers or talk soon or whatever in the closing? How many words are best in email? Just on and on and on that I can ask those types of questions of the data and then try to find correlation. It's interesting. So, so the correlation piece is, is uh, how many different data points do you need to come up with something that is really reliable? So it would be start off with, hey... And then the subject line should be four words long. And then the email, so how, how many different pieces do you need to pull together to have something that's really an impactful? It's, I mean, usually, well, I mean, I'll, I'll start out with some kind of hypothesis, right? Which is, I'll say, huh, I'm wondering what type of greeting 
is the best greeting. And what I'll do there is I'll say, okay, I know how to identify the greeting. That's usually the first line in an email. And if that line you know, ends in a period, it's probably not a, a greeting. It's probably they just skipped over the greeting to begin with. And then I could look for, I, I know what a first name looks like. So I can st strip out the first names. I can just take what's left. And what's left could be anything, right? It could be hi, hey, hello, cheers, hola, whatever, right? It could be any of those things. And then what the what the system will tell me back is what is what's the reply rate for each one of those and then what's the overall reply rate? So I can compare and I can say like, and this is how uh, I started using Hey, was I found out that Hey was the best way to greet folks. I, I think I, I share these as little one-off tips on LinkedIn. Usually I do one post a day that's some kind of data-driven tip on LinkedIn. And I shared that out and that one kind of got a chuckle as I started to get more and more Hey emails. And now as probably a year and a half, two years has progressed from that, now Hey doesn't have the same effect that it had. Like it does, some of these things do lose their efficacy over time. And I think the ones that are novelty works, period, because humans are drawn to novelty. So hey was was unusual. And once it becomes the norm, people learn to filter it out and recognize this, oh, this is yet another sales email and they didn't put any elbow grease into it. So that goes away in its effectiveness. But I think there are some things that just are much more persistent because they're less about novelty and, and more about things like minimizing human effort. So for instance, subject lines with one or two words outperform subject lines with more than that. Email bodies with more with the, the, right now the optimal email body length is 40 words, but you know don't sweat measuring every word. The the key is that you know once you go over certainly over a hundred you fall off a cliff in terms of reply rate. But if you can keep it 50 plus or minus whatever, I think that's a pretty good place to be. So those are examples of things where I, I don't think those are flash in the pan things. You know if you send if you write a humongously long subject line, then people are going to tune you out. If you write a humongously long email. You know it yourself, right? You get a long email, just like there's no way this person is is trying to communicate with me effectively. Delete, delete, delete. So I think there are some of these things that are much more deeply rooted. But we'll you know we'll test for them, and if they turn out to not be true, let let me be. I love to be surprised. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Uh, you know, coming at it from a data perspective, looking at everything that's available to you, coming up with the, these ideas, it, it kind of reminds me, but it's a, it's a little bit different uh, than that Chris Voss book, Never Split the Difference, where he mm -hmm. talked about the no response, right? People don't want to say no. Have you read that book? Yes, I have. And I, I encourage people, by the way, that's a great book. He, he bashes in that book the Harvard researchers on negotiation. Right. But it turns out, actually, A, the book that was written by the Harvard book folks is called Negotiation Genius. So A, they're not all that different, the books, to begin with, because negotiation theory has been well vetted in academic research, like should you make the first offer or not? Most of the time you should, and unless you're at a severe information disadvantage. Those sorts of things are going to be in the Harvard book as well as every other book, and Never Split the Difference book. So one is that they're not so different. And then B, they're actually complementary. So they don't argue completely different things. They argue contextually different things. So in that way, they're complementary. So I'd actually encourage people, so many people have read and loved Never Split the Difference. Don't let the words in that book turn you off. You should go read Negotiation Genius also. <laughs> All right. Good good tip. So kind of switching over back over to research and thinking about your, your role uh, over at SalesLoft, you get a lot of data that's internal that you can crunch. Um, how often do you look externally, not for syndicated research like a Gartner or a Forrester, but how often do you look at data collection from your customers or your prospects or other sources of truth to help 
as an input into your decision-making process. Yeah. And again, it seems like I'm splitting everything in twos today. I usually split things in threes, <laughs> but yeah, there's, I also think there's sort of these two different types of insights. One is the type of insights that you can get from just looking at operational data, right? Or looking at customer usage data. But I, I do think, you know, that only tells half the story because, and, you know, I, I learned this from the people I worked at, at Gartner who were all ex-McKinsey consultants is, in fact, before you dive into data, most of the time what you want to, like before you do a, execute a survey, you actually want to do a qualitative pass at, you know, at that. And there are certain insights that can only come through qualitative work, like the stuff you do, right? So if you're doing win-loss analysis, that's not a big data sort of thing. It's a small data thing, but it's very, very much a qualitative exercise because so much of why people win or lose deals, it doesn't exist in a CRM. It was emotional or it was the way the prospect felt about not just the relationship, but I remember reading a quote recently that was basically, I think it's like, how you sell is how you'll service. And so I felt that as a buyer also is if I feel I have this other thing that goes through my mind is things that don't things that start badly and badly. So if I feel like a, if a relationship or a transaction, I don't want to call it a transaction, like a sales relate, a sales relationship has not started out right, then I just walk as a buyer because I, I, I do, I, I do subscribe to that is this is the time where they're going to treat me the best. Probably, right? Uh, no, not too many companies, sadly, treat people as well after they become customers as, as they do when they're prospects. And, you know, as buyers, we all kind of know it. But, you know, that's sort of, that's a bit of what guides me in uh, the qualitative the qualitative side. So then most companies don't, don't have enough internal expertise to even be able to do that. Like, you know, to Gartner's credit, right, they were staffed or are staffed with tons of ex-McKinsey consultants who are great at doing that sort of thing. But that's a pretty rare, it's, it is a skill that needs to be trained and developed, non-biased, objective, fighting against confirmation bias, so seeking disconfirming information. Like those, and being patient and listening, those are not easy those are not being non-reactive. Those are not easy skills, but they're developable. But that's why I think third parties I'll often turn to to, to help with the qualitative side. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to see how internal data matches up with external data and if there's a, a match or a miss and, and what the learnings are, the opportunities are that emerge from those gaps. And then going back to the other data set that you were talking about, have you been able to measure the impact of that effort? Yeah, so a good example of that is uh, this was research that our data science team did predated my arrival at Sales Loft. We we looked at 300 million emails and looked at what percent the emails should be personalized, and we found that if you personalize up to 20 percent of the content of the email, you get a 2x increase in the reply rate at, at the 20% mark. And then beyond 20% of the content, you, you're, you're wasting your time. And then in fact, above 80%, if you blow away the, the, the starting template, you're more likely than not to actually decrease the effectiveness of your email because you've spent so much time tuning and A-B testing to get there. So like, you know, we put that into place. We, we provide, we give that advice to our customers. And time and time again, as we look at the analytics, we can now look at personalized versus not personalized. And we see that over and over and over again. So I think that's a really good example of where, you know, the, the 20% thing says, yes, you should personalize. But 
you should stop. And uh, maybe we'll have some time to talk about it. But personalization is a very hot topic in sales right now. And, and whether or not you should or should not personalize and how to personalize, that's a whole other super fascinating line of conversation. Well, so tell me, tell me about it. Why is it fascinating? In a nutshell, we basically went through, we, we, we went into this movement in B2B sales where way, way back, you probably, you probably remember this, but like way, way back, Jeff Hoffman did this with Basho. And that torch has been carried by John Barrows uh, going forward. And then now we've got Beck Holland on the scene doing amazing stuff. And, you know, Beck, for example, has this nice structure. And she sort of, she said, she says, like, there are six ways to personalize. I don't know if it's exactly six. He's probably changed it over time. But there's six ways to personalize. And you should follow, like, try to do number one. Number one being prospect created content. So if someone were to listen to this podcast and then, like, prospect you by quoting you back to you or right. prospect me yeah. by quoting me back to me. So that would be prospect generated content. And then she goes down this down this list. And I, I think there's been a there's there's starting to be this early this early concern I think about about that kind of personalization that now that everyone's doing it, we've come full circle that the novelty, as I talked about about you know certain things in the email body, it's the same thing here, which is the novelty of, you know, hey Ryan, I see you love cats. I love cats. So hey Jeremy, I see you love cats. That's gonna stop working because everyone's going to see I love cats and that I know that I know what they're doing. So what I think is happening right now is, you know, you've got people like Justin Michael, a really great thinker in, in the world of sales coming out and saying, look, personalization takes time. I can send a hundred emails in the time it takes you to send one. Why don't I put the effort into making sure that that email, he uses the word relevance. I think everything is relevant, but I think I'll use the word value that that email has value to you. So what do I what do I mean by that? A good example, right, is we, we've created a whole bunch of these, we call them kind of micro apps. But we've created a whole bunch of these tools, utilities that people can use. So emailgrader.com or subjectlinegrader.com or cadencebuilder.com, like we have a whole bunch of these things. So if I were to prospect, you know, a, a sales leader and say, hey, here's these four tools that your team can use right now. They're free to get immediate value out of. Like that's a lot better than telling them that I know they love cats because right they can really use it to get value or and, and we're stealing a page from the HubSpot playbook right so HubSpot had this has actually they still have it this thing called website grader and if you're a, a marketing professional you can go grade your website for free and get incredibly actionable information from it and I think that, like that is just an example but amongst others about ways to truly add value in in a way that is actually not quote unquote personalized, but is maybe even more relevant and certainly more valuable. So I feel it in the zeitgeist, the shift towards more value in prospecting. Hopefully we get there, but you never know. It takes effort. Everybody wants personalization at scale, relevance at scale. But I think those things are, with the exception of maybe those things like the HubSpot grader or, or the stuff that we built and other people you know, have stuff like that too, with the exception of stuff where you're legitimately giving value, you know, just trying to find a way to scale. I know you love cats is, I think, a fool's errand. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I remember the uh, the Basho training back at Gartner. I think it was before John Barrow's time, but we learned all about personalization and the was it why you why now why you why you now mm -hmm. why you now. Yeah, it was it was good stuff. But that's really interesting that there's a, a shift going on, and I'm gonna have to dig a little bit deeper into that area with you. 
Yeah, I mean, you guys are lucky, I guess, and when you're trying to go to those interviews, that it it should be warm, right? Is it is? Yeah, is yeah. I I either you know it's win loss, so I I was either involved in the winning, you know, win or loss. Uh, the trickier part probably is to get the people who said no to you know to spend time with you. But I would think you know your hit rate should be should be pretty good there, especially because you're a third party. Like it may be super uncomfortable if I spent a lot of time with someone and then chose their competitor to then go talk to them directly. But to talk to a third party who's just trying to make everyone better, I think that's. Maybe I'm I too wish it was friendly. that easy. Yeah. yeah, I wish everybody felt that way. Yeah, it, it it depends on the on the company, the client, you know, what they're selling, who they're selling to, how strategic. A sale it is. There's a lot of different factors, re- regional factors as well. So people probably do a lot for a fifty dollars Amazon gift card. I would I would assume they do. It's, there's there's certain groups that that will jump at the opportunity to, to get a fifty dollars gift card. Others not so much. <laughs> but we have to think about the buyer and and try to personalize the incentive in a way that's meaningful to them. Yes, and, yeah. and and even better, which is, and this is what I'm saying about the about going going in knowledgeable is don't say like we'll donate fifty dollars to your charity of choice. That is a researchable, discoverable thing. So you can say, or we could donate this to Habitat for Humanity, or we could donate this to the Human Rights Commission, or whatever. Right? right. Like if you go in and you know specifically where their interests lie, your likelihood of getting their response is way higher. Absolutely, that's a really good point. So going back through the research area, we talked a bit about the kind of communication style and and making some recommendations to improve email communications. Have you done any sort of primary research like WinLoss or or others that are focused on fine-tuning the sales team's approach to selling, right? Other than the communication piece, when they're actually engaging with the, the client, when they're bringing them through a demonstration process or an evaluation process, have you, have you done any sort of primary research to look into that particular area? I would say it's more limited. I'll split again in two because it's our cliche of the pod, <laughs> of the podcast. But you know, one is I, I really like the research that's coming out of Gong where they're analyzing specific conversations and figuring out things like salespeople should talk no more than, I think it's like 43% of the time. And you should only ask this many questions. And especially if you're talking to a C-level executive, you should only ask that many questions. You know, like I think all that stuff is is super helpful. One of the most useful ones out of Gong, I think is, you know, it's correlation, not causation, but to the extent that you can have more people on your side on the phone, that exhibition of force helps. So if you're selling and you can bring your manager along with you, hopefully you like your manager, hopefully they don't torpedo your deal, but you should bring those people along. So I think there's a lot of great advice there. The other place my mind went is, and I don't have any data on this. I'm just, I know from when I've been in the buying mode that when people have used mutual value plans, success plans, I really appreciate that as a buyer, right? Because especially if I'm newer to an organization, I don't necessarily know how to buy Right. Like I actually I want the seller to help me figure out what are the things I need to do in order to successfully buy because I'm I'm often in champion mode. And even if I have budget, you know, I can't necessarily spend that budget without a whole bunch of other people having eyeballs on that to begin with. And I think that's a pretty common, common thing. So I really love mutual success plans. I would love to do a study that basically said, looked at where mutual plans were used versus not used and what the close rates, the correlation and close or win rates between those deals. My hypothesis obviously would be where mutual plans are used are much, much higher close rates, but it's a, it's a testable thing. I, I mean, I, I don't believe anything until I, you know, I've seen a legitimate 
study with good sample sizes or I've done it myself. So I would like to see that. And if that is the case, then we as salespeople, especially in enterprise selling, less so in, if you're in a transactional sale, you don't have time for a mutual plan. But in in an enterprise sales environment, I, I think that's hugely best practice that is under massively underutilized. Yeah, it, it's an interesting point. We're actually working with a company right now who's trying to figure out how to get deals from stage three to stage four. And the trigger is a mutual value plan, which is stage four. And they're losing a lot of people at stage three. So we're trying to help them figure out, are these people disqualifying themselves because they don't want to take that step to really commit to a plan? So it seems like a mutual value plan is a good way to also shake out prospects that aren't really serious, which could potentially help you save time. And and to that point, like, Maybe they shouldn't be doing it between three and four. They should probably introduce the value plan really early. I mean, I, I, some of the folks that I've seen will have, they'll have like a, the last slide in, I mean, decks are not great, but let's say even if you have a three slide deck or something, the last slide is, is just a super, out, a very, very high level outline of the, of the mutual value plan with the four or five things that need to get done. And I, I think that's good because I, I, I've been on the end of being, you know, someone trying to actively disqualify me, which I don't enjoy, especially when, <laughs> you know, I am going to buy. That turns me off in a big way. But I think the mutual plan at the end of the demo, maybe that's the second meeting or something, I think a mutual plan is appropriate there and, and should scare off the the people who are not going to be your champion. Well, well, uh, once you do your analysis in that area, we'd love to see your the results of what you come up with for, for mutual value plans. That'll be interesting. So as a sales leader, a lot of the people who are listening to this podcast are product marketers. What type of advice do you have to product marketers at B2B SaaS-based technology companies on how to best support somebody in your position? Not me, but Salesloft did a survey on this, actually, funny enough. This was not planned, but that was the last survey we did. We did it in partnership with Modern Sales Pros. And so they confirmed what what, what I would have believed to begin with. I didn't even know the survey was going on, actually, until I found out about the results. And what it, what it basically found was what salespeople most want from marketing is basically, you know, leads, good leads. So they were they were asking about the different kinds of assets that were out there. And, you know, I was in marketing before when you and I knew each other at Gartner, right? I was in, I was in the marketing team. And I've adopted the belief that the the only viable lead is a demo request or contact us or pricing you know give me pricing like i think those are the those tier 1 priority leads are the are the uh, the only the only viable leads everything else like a webinar or a white paper or whatever like that none of that is leads it's brand building so my advice i guess to marketers especially on the demand gen side is yes do all those things yes do webinars yes do ebooks yes do all these other things but what you should be asking for is like constantly hey hope you enjoyed the webinar when you're ready if you want to learn more about double check or sales loft or whatever if you want to learn more you know here's how you book a demo like i think that i think the nurturing should be with the intent of getting people to opt in to engagement that that i don't i mean maybe that's an obvious thing to say but that 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 is a strong conclusion i've drawn just having seen so so many attempts to try to to try to engage lower quality leads. The other thing is, and I learned this as a marketer, is it is a marketer's job to take the way that things are described one level higher 
in terms of abstraction because the the brand is is aspirational. But so my advice to marketers is is when you it, you know if you were involved in creating copy for directly for salespeople to use and say and send, you need to bring the level of abstraction back down a level so that the salespeople are actually comfortable saying and sending what you've drafted. And I think that's one of the biggest sales marketing disconnects is is like that language that the marketers desire to send abstract aspirational language and the sellers desire to send practical stuff that they would they would say without feeling embarrassed in the process. Yeah. You've had a lot of success in your career. Um, you've done a lot inside of organizations as well as personally writing your books and all of the other work that you do. When you think about your career wrapping up at some point and you, you want to be remembered or thought of for one thing, what is that one thing that you really want people to think of when they think of you? He cared, I think. It's probably... That's probably it. I mean, no tangible thing survives. No, not, none of it survives, right? 10, 50, 100 years from now, no one remembers anything. What I you know, would hope is that people thought I was an authentic, genuine, caring person who helped people. I don't know that I can help them personally, but at least that, that helped them professionally, that, that believed in them even more than they believed in themselves. I think that's, that's what I would love to be known for. That was Jeremy Donovan, SVP of Sales Strategy at SalesLoft. If you want to see any of the tools that Jeremy mentioned on today's show, you can find them at emailgrader.com and subjectlinegrader.com. You can also follow Jeremy on LinkedIn, where he posts his tips daily. And don't forget to look him up on Amazon, where you can find all of his six books. And if you like today's show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. And thanks for listening. 